The epistle lesson this morning is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 29. And um, verses 15 through 20 uh, apparently record an ancient hymn uh, that then Paul goes on to, to explain. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, And in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last month, I threatened to give a full and detailed explication of the doctrine of the Trinity, but didn't follow through on that. Well, today's topic is predestination. John Calvin's doctrine of predestination is the most famous or perhaps infamous aspect of Presbyterian theology. These days, Calvinist thought is also studied extensively in Baptist circles, and maybe maybe more among the Baptists than among the Presbyterians, actually. Calvin believed that God made an unchangeable decree from before the creation of the world to save some people, the elect. They were predestinated for eternal life in the glorious kingdom of God. He also believed that the others, the reprobate, would be barred from access to salvation and sentenced to eternal death. Hmm. 
The first problem this doctrine creates is the uncertainty. Am I one of the elect or one of the reprobate? And how could I possibly know? The so-called Protestant work ethic is one response to that. If you're successful in this life, well, you must be one of the elect. And if you're unsuccessful in this life, you must be one of the reprobate. And so people started working hard to be successful to prove that they were one of the elect. I find this whole concept repulsive. Why would God choose before the founding of creation to create people who are destined for eternal death with no hope for salvation? To me, that seems the height of evil, not goodness. How can I worship a God who has already arbitrarily decided to send some people to hell? Now, Calvin made sense of it by asserting total depravity, that all of humanity is deserving of hell, so really it's good news that some people are saved. I, 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 can't, be, I can't get behind that. I can't accept the doctrine that claims that we are all totally, completely, irrevocably evil. I mean, we were made in the image of God through Christ, so there must be goodness in us. In the centuries since Calvin put this doctrine forward, many theologians have struggled with it as well. I've come to accept Karl Barth's analysis. Barth argued that, yes, God predestined who would be saved and chose Jesus Christ. Through Christ, then, all things are reconciled to God. Now, that's a theology I can accept. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote, For as all die in Adam so all will be made alive in Christ. This world is broken and sinful, so we experience pain and death. Yet, all, yet we will be made alive through Christ, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to God's self all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Amen. Bart himself did not believe in universal salvation, but that's the logical endpoint of his argument. So I read a useful argument, a useful analysis that used sets and logical predicates and contradictions and all that stuff. I, I won't subject you to that in part because I didn't read it all. <laughs> instead, uh, I'll instead to appeal to love. Through Christ, reconciliation is available to all people and indeed all creation. God's grace is an unconditional gift. So why would a loving God withhold that gift? Now I do believe that we need to accept that gift of love and salvation and reconciliation. But where I differ from some of my evangelical colleagues is that I do not believe that death is the end. Death is not the end of the opportunity to accept the gift of God's grace. If God's kingdom is eternal, our lives are just a blink of an eye. In a way, Calvinist predestination revives the Gnostic heresy. So the Gnostics were a faction in uh, early Christianity in the second and third centuries who were ultimately cast out as heretics. They believed that the God of Israel did create the material world but that all material things were inherently evil. Humans 
have the divine spark within themselves, which is good, but everything else is evil. And Jesus came to teach secrets to a select few that revealed how to escape the evil of the world. This dualistic worldview was rejected when Christianity settled on the Nicene Creed and other, other early creeds. We believe instead that Jesus was both fully human and fully God, and that all things were created through Christ, who is the Word, the divine Logos, who has redeemed creation. The world is broken, but not irredeemably or inherently evil. God is present in the world, just as God is present in the heavenly realm. But dualistic thinking survives, and Calvinist predestination survives, in part because the concept of grace is just so amazing that it seems too good to be true. The New Testament teaches that Jesus offers forgiveness to anyone who asks. Some people struggle to accept that forgiveness either for themselves or for other people that they think are undeserving. So I recently reread The Second Mountain by David Brooks. It's a really good book, by the way. David Brooks grew up as a, as a cultural Jew with a lot of exposure to Christianity, but as an adult was functionally agnostic. Uh, as he was working on an earlier book, he came up with the idea of participatory grace, which is kind of like meeting God halfway. He thought, well, maybe if I do some good things and stop doing some bad things, then God will do the rest of the work. His then-colleague and future wife rejected this concept out of hand. There is no participation necessary for grace. God's grace is a gift, freely given, available to anyone who will accept it. We can choose whether or not to accept it and when, but ultimately it's a gift. We don't need to do anything to earn it. Jesus already did what needs to be done. As Paul wrote to the Colossians, through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. The work has been done. The gift is waiting to be unwrapped. We can delay and defer entering God's dominion by accepting this gift, or we can turn towards God now and experience the joy of God's love. What we can't do is earn any more love from God than we already have, nor can we lose our place in God's family. And we also can't choose who, it, who receives the gift of God's grace. So apparently there's a dispute in some Christian corners of the internet about uh, serving communion to the unbaptized. And that was a, that was a debate in our denomination, PCUSA, a decade or more ago. Also, there's many churches that only accept certain kinds of baptisms as being sufficient to earn a right to the sacrament of communion. Roman Catholics only accept Catholic baptisms. Baptists and many like-minded uh, denominations and non-denominational churches only accept adult baptism. This policing of the Lord's table is exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught. It's exactly the opposite of what Paul taught. They taught that all are welcome at the table, 
whether saint or sinner, Jew or Greek. Jesus was criticized for eating with tax collectors and sinners, but he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If our Lord's table were only available to those who were worthy, we'd just never serve communion. Instead, we know that Jesus Christ makes us worthy. Jesus makes us holy and blameless and irreproachable before God. Elsewhere, Jesus taught that we must be born again or born from above. This is usually interpreted to mean that we must have some sort of a conversion experience, a vivid encounter where we turn our lives over to God through Jesus. In the Pentecostal tradition, this is accompanied by speaking in tongues and other gifts of the Spirit. But again, this is not something that we can choose to do. Let me ask, did you choose to be born? I mean, somebody chose that you would be born, but you didn't choose it. In the same way, we cannot be cho choose to be born anew into God's family. It just happens. We are given the gift of membership in God's family, whether we like it or not. We can only choose whether to embrace the love that flows from God or to reject it. So, why are we here? I mean, why are we, why do churches exist and why are we worshiping together this morning? Well, we cannot choose who receives God's gift of grace, but we can be conduits for it. The tangible expression of God's love in another person's life. We come to church in part to experience that love and in part to prepare ourselves to share it with other people. Pastor Ashita Moore wrote, the whole of Jesus's ministry was to establish a community so convinced of their belovedness to God that they proclaim the belovedness of others. We should strive to become ever more mature in Christ, always better examples of God's love to those we meet. Let me share a brief story to give, a, give you an example. A couple months ago, I had a conversation with someone who is feeling just a sense of, of despair and hopelessness. She was being bombarded by things that she didn't believe, but they still kind of wore her down. Things like Bill Gates engineered the coronavirus so he could use the vaccines to implant microchips in everyone, which are the mark of the beast that will doom us to uh, eternal damnation in a lake of fire. I shared with her my theology, my belief in the ultimate salvation of all creation. The central message and the core teaching of the book of Revelation, and indeed the whole New Testament, is that in the end, God wins. Things may look bleak right now, but in the end, God wins. I saw her again last week, and she said that conversation was a turning point for her. Instead of despair, she has hope now and is investing in expanding her business. I expressed gratitude, and then I said, you know, that wasn't me. That was God. God used me on that day to share with her a message of hope that she needed to hear. 
You never know who you might impact or in what way God might use you to share a message of hope and love and reconciliation with someone who needs to hear it. I mean, it just so happens that I saw her again. But how many people do I have conversations with and never never see again? Right? And so I would never know what impact I may have had. How many people do you encounter that you'll never see again, uh, but who may carry a message of hope and love that you shared with them? But also remember that everyone is on a different path and can only hear that message in a way that makes sense to them. So I'm an advisor to Common Call, which is our campus ministry jointly with Christ Episcopal Church. Common Call is part of the Campus Ministries Association. We're a very, very small player compared to uh, Christian Campus Fellowship and Baptist Student Union and many other uh, organizations. We're also theologically very different from most of them. But I stay active in CMA and support all these other ministries who, who have theologies that I don't agree with because each student needs to hear a message that makes sense to them. Some people need to be told what to believe. Some people need to experience the gifts of the Spirit in order to believe that they really are accepted by God. Some people need to hear words of absolution from a priest after they confess their sins. But some people also need to hear about a God who loves them already, who welcomes them wherever they are on their faith journey. Common Call provides a safe place where students can express their doubts and their questions, and in doing so, grow into an adult and personal faith instead of a fragile, received faith. Paul taught us what our role is. The word he used to describe himself is diakonos, which is variously translated as minister or servant or even waiter. It's the word that, that we, that, that it's the source of the word we have, deacon. Paul writes that he is a servant of the gospel for which he toils and strives with all the energy that Christ powerfully inspires within him. Paul had a hard life. I mean, he was, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked. And yet, all of his writings are just filled with hope and joy. He knew that the hardships of this world were a part of his education as a servant of the gospel. They toughened him up so that he could reach more and more people. And indeed, his words have inspired billions of Christians for two millennia. Paul was literally a servant for the gospel, like a waiter bringing food and drink, the body and blood of Christ to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In his time, there was an ongoing debate about whether a Gentile had to become a Jew before becoming a Christian, and he always taught that the answer is no. Christ's grace is sufficient. There is no longer any need for the cultural markers of Judaism like circumcision. For through Christ, all things have been reconciled to God. Paul didn't really need to teach anybody anything in order for them to one day be welcome at Jesus' heavenly banquet.
but he traveled the Mediterranean sharing the riches of the glory of the mystery of Christ's gift to all of us. He revealed this mystery to both Jews and Gentiles, a mystery hidden throughout the ages. God has always been present in the world, for Christ is before all things. But until the coming of Jesus, God's presence was invisible. Jesus came to reveal the glory of his presence in the world and his presence in each person. Now we are called to continue to reveal that glory. Jesus is no longer visibly present, so it is up to us to show his love to all of God's beloved children. It is up to us to be Christ's body, still present and visible. Paul urges us to stay true to the gospel truth, that all things have been reconciled to God, that we are part of God's dominion, that Christ has made us holy and blameless and irreproachable before God. Let us strive to grow into mature Christians, confident in God's grace, freely given, and acting as conduits for that grace and that love, so that all people may know the love and joy that comes from full participation in the kingdom of God. Amen.